This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Thank you. Living to please God. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. Well, we are very pleased to welcome a guest today among us, Paul, Paul Mayo. Um, He's actually my brother, too, twice over. So, Paul, thanks so much for being here this morning and uh, for leading us through this passage. All yours. Thank you, Andy. Well, it's lovely to be with you. Really, really nice to be with you. Um, Yesterday afternoon, um, Liz, it was a bit of a grim afternoon yesterday afternoon, wasn't it? It was kind of grey and uh, damp. And uh, so Liz and the children and I sat down to watch Chariots of Fire. Um, anyone watch Chariots of Fire? Yeah, it's actually my first time watching it yesterday afternoon, but it is exactly as good as everyone's always told me all my life. I think it was made when I was about six months old, um, but it really hasn't aged. It's fantastic. Um, and um, there's an amazing scene in it. Um, it tells the story of the flying Scotsman, Eric Liddell, uh, the fastest man in Scotland, who was on his way to be a missionary in China, but along the way had time to pick up a gold medal at the 1924 Olympics in the 400 meters. Um, and um, he, was, um, um, he, he, he was committed to being a missionary in China. And his sister asked him, why is it that you get involved with running when you're on your way to be a missionary in China? And he said, well, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel his pleasure. And in this passage, we are told by the Apostle Paul to make that, to make that motivation, the pleasure of God, the big motivation shaping and driving our lives. Look at 4 verse 1. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, to please God for God's enjoyment, for God's pleasure, to bring a smile to the face of the one who is infinite wisdom and goodness and power, who designs every sunset, sculpted every galaxy, and gives you every breath. The one who has um, given you more than your parents and loved you more than your closest friend. The one who is more beautiful, more creative, more kind than any other being in the universe. And it sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it, to suggest that we can be a source of pleasure to that God, the God who created everything and needs no one. But that's what the Bible tells us repeatedly. Um, Zephaniah 3.17, he will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you 
with singing. Isaiah 62 verse 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In fact, there are so many verses in the Bible about God rejoicing over us that um, one time when I preached on this passage, a man stood up and he heckled me and he said, Paul, how dare you tell me to live for the pleasure of God? God is already pleased with me. And he's right, isn't he? Actually, the Bible tells us that God is pleased with us. He, he loves us. Jesus told the story of a dad who lost his son. Not like I lost my Johnny when he was five years old and he cycled off into a crowd in Avignon and we were desperately searching until a Dutch tourist eventually brought him back about 20 minutes later. Um, but a dad who lost his son because his son decided that he didn't want his dad anymore. He said, I, I'd rather have your money. Sell half your farm so that I can take the money and head off to the big city where I'm going to blow it all on wild living. And that's exactly what the son did. But the money ran out, and the son trudged home, wondering whether he would even be allowed in the front door. But what does Jesus tell us? While he was still far off, the father saw him, and the father ran to him and embraced him, and threw a massive party for him. And that is what Jesus tells us is the reaction of God to us coming back in repentance when we have done nothing at all to deserve that. He, he loves us. He delights in us. He throws his arms around us. There is a celebration in heaven when we turn to him. But carry on with that parable for a minute and picture the morning after the party and the dad comes downstairs and looks out the window and there is the son out on the farm on the tractor working on the farm faithfully doing what he should have been doing all along and the father goes out and works alongside him does the father have less pleasure at that point than at the party before the night before no I think he has more pleasure doesn't he he, he delights because he loves his son to see him being all that he was made to be and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us because he loved us. When we repented, there was a party in heaven. You are loved by God. And because God loves us, he takes great fatherly pleasure when we love others, defy our sinful desires, and reflect his character back to him. That pleases him. He takes fatherly pleasure in us living in that way. And it is an amazingly powerful motivation to live your life that way. I find that when I have my, my head clear on that, when I am weighing my actions by asking, does this please God, then it, it's liberating. It's so striking, isn't it, in the movie Chariots of Fire. Between the two main characters, Harold Abrahams, who, who looks down the track and says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence and Eric Liddell, the Christian, who says, as I run, I feel God's pleasure. And it gives them a completely different outlook on life. One is liberated to live joyfully. The other is compelled to try and impress the world. And I find that when I have my head screwed on right and I'm living for the pleasure of God, then I'm freed. I'm freed not to worry about what people think about me. I'm freed to, to do the unnoticed, the unthanked, the unglamorous and say, God sees, he is smiling. And I'm compelled to live with integrity. 
I can't say, well, no one will notice because God sees and God knows. And it means there is no upper limit to how much we want to live this way if we live this way. Look at what Paul says in 4 verse 1. We instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. They are already living this way. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. The Thessalonians are already doing it, but Paul wants them to do it more and more because you know they're not just paying their taxes or clearing a debt. They are seeking to please the one they love. And you can never please the one you love enough. You, you, you want to throw yourself into that wholeheartedly. There's no upper limit. Well, what will characterize the things that please God? Well, look at uh, what Paul says. He says they'll be sanctified, they'll be self-controlled, and they'll be loving. Look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, what does sanctified mean? It means to be holy, to be distinct, different, set apart. Look at verse 5. We're to be not like the pagans who don't know God. But in particular, to be sanctified means to be like God. He is holy. We are told that he is holy, 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 utterly holy. And so being sanctified means reflecting God's character. As humans, we are made in the image of God. And as God's children, we are told in Ephesians 5 verse 1, be imitators of God. God is most good, most generous, most upright. He is absolute kindness, wisdom, perfection. So it's no surprise that the more we reflect God's character back to him, the more pleasing we will be to God. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And also, we will be self-controlled. We will defy our desires. One of my earliest memories, it's bizarrely vivid, is uh, Donald Duck at the end of some cartoon saying, always be yourself. And there's a sense of truth to that. God has knit you together in your mother's womb as a unique character to reflect his glory in a uniquely you-like way. And so there's truth in that. But also, fairly early on in life, most of us figure out that there is a darkness within us. And if we let our inner hulk off the leash, it would not be happy for anyone around us. There are desires within us of which we are rightly ashamed, and we seek to control them. And if we are to reflect God's character, then we must rein in our desires, defy our desires when they want to be selfish, unloving, unkind. Look at 4 verse 4. You should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Because if our actions are pleasing to God, then they must be, look at verse 6, they must be loving, not hurting others. No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Imagine how you would feel if you saw a man intentionally, casually hurting your child. Imagine if you realized that he was exploiting your child for his own gain. Imagine if that man was someone that you had welcomed into your life, cared for when he deserved nothing from you. Imagine the rage that you would feel. 
Well, it would be a righteous rage, a glimpse of God's emotion. He loves everyone he has made. He has given us everything we have. And yet we casually hurt these people that he has made and that he loves. If we want our behavior to be pleasing to him, then it can't have any hint of that selfish exploitation. It must be loving, putting others first. But some of you are looking at your Bibles and you're thinking, wait a minute, Paul, you are nimbly tiptoeing around the main subject of this passage. Um, Paul tells us quite clearly here in 4 verse 3 the way in which he wants us to be sanctified, self-controlled, and loving. Verse 3, what is it? He wants us to avoid sexual immorality. Now, every preacher is encouraged to avoid that subject. People don't want to hear about it. And uh, they assume you're talking about it when you're not talking about it anyway, uh, we're told. So, so, so don't talk about it. But the Apostle Paul didn't get that memo. And uh, actually his main point is, avoid sex, is, is be sanctified, self-controlled, and loving by avoiding sexual immorality. Now what is sexual immorality? Well, God created sex. It is his idea. It's a good thing. And he made a perfect context for it. One man giving himself unreservedly, irrevocably, entirely to one woman. And sexual immorality is any sexual activity that, that falls short of that lifelong covenant giving of one to another. Now, why does a life that pleases God by being sanctified, self-controlled, and loving, why does it avoid sexual immorality? Well, well look at each of these things sanctified. Why is it reflecting God's character? Well, the Bible is a love story, isn't it? About a prince who goes to a far-off country to win back his enslaved and oppressed beloved, who, who doesn't deserve it and has put herself in that situation. And it costs him everything to rescue her. But he does so joyfully giving himself for her and then giving himself to her because that is who he is eternally. The eternal Trinitarian God is characterized by these relationships of love forever. The Father has been fully, faithfully, unreservedly giving himself to the Son. The Son has been fully, faithfully, unreservedly giving himself to the Father, the Spirit. Fully, faithfully, unreservedly giving himself to the Father and the Son. This is who God is. The faithful, covenant-keeping God of love. And it brings pleasure to God when he sees in our relationships the same characteristics. That's why we avoid any sexual activity that falls short of God's character in this area because it would be a blasphemous, twisted caricature of his love. It would be a lie about who God is and what Jesus is like. And so we seek to avoid sexual immorality because we want to reflect God's character. About self-control, denying our desires. Well, thanks to the influence of a chap called Sigmund Freud, we, we, we in our culture, think it's unhealthy to, desire, to defy our desires. I read an article this month by a philosopher who is um, training to lead a church, ironically, who... Um, who says that he's not going to stop being involved in relationships that the Bible calls sexually immoral because it is dangerous to say no to your desires. That was his justification. But C.S. Lewis pointed out that actually 
If we always say yes to our desires, then most of us will end up as a slightly unhealthy weight reasonably soon. Um, and uh, that's been my experience through lockdown, having my study next to the kitchen and not going into work hasn't been great for my health. Um, but C.S. Lewis also said, and there's one desire that actually, you know, if, if every time C.S. Lewis said a man thought about sex, he was handed a baby, quickly his life would feel difficult to keep under control. Um, and um, he would end up with more babies than he could handle. And for many of us, our sexual appetite is the one that is most out of whack with reality. And I think C.S. Lewis is more right than Sigmund Freud on this. And that's why Paul says, verse 4, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And it's, it's not easy. Paul says it is something that we learn, that we struggle with. And I speak to you as someone in the trenches of the battle on this. But we want to reflect the character of the faithful, holy God. And so we defy our desires. And then we want to be loving, not hurting others. As a teenager, this seemed strange. What could be more loving than making love? But God says that we should avoid sexual immorality, verse 6, so that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. I found it confusing as a teenager, but over the last two decades, I've sat with cheated spouses, abandoned kids, and men who are addicted to porn and so fail in their responsibilities. And I've seen the truth of what Paul says. I imagine in my own life, if I was unfaithful to my wife, the widening circle of pain, the hurtful is, the confusion for my kids, the hand grade, her hand grenade thrown into the whole circle of our friendships. Wherever there is sexual immorality, there is always victims. And I haven't lived long enough to know exactly why what you are tempted towards would produce victims. But I do know that it will, because God's laws are not random. They're given by the one who is loved to teach us how to love the people that he loves. Whenever there is sexual immorality, there is always victims. And where there are victims, there must be vengeance. No justice, no peace. The Bible is clear on that. Not that we are to take revenge, we mustn't. We must turn the other cheek. But we turn the other cheek knowing the second half of verse 6. Look at the second half of verse 6. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. Jimmy Savile had an amazing funeral, lauded and celebrated by the great and the good in our society, but he has not got away with it. There will be justice. Jesus is an avenger. And I hope that's a comfort to you if you've been taken advantage of in these areas. But it should also motivate us to live a life that flees from being a person who does these things. Our translation puts a full stop in the middle of verse 6. The NIV does. But, but actually, Paul didn't put a full stop there. He actually um, put the word because. So verse 6, In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or his sister because the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. It's a very sobering verse, isn't it? Have a think. You know, 2020 didn't quite go as we had hoped. 2021 didn't open 
quite as we hoped, but what are the things that could still go wrong um, in this year? I don't know what it is that you worry about or imagine could be the worst things that could happen this year. Nuclear war, terrorism, mutation of the virus, um, disasters at work, disasters at home. Well, Jesus had very strong words about what it is that's worth worrying about. Luke 12, verses 4 to 5. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says that is the one thing that is truly worth worrying about. It's worse than prison sickness or war, unending disaster. And knowing this, Paul believed, should motivate us to live a sanctified, self-controlled, loving life, especially in the area of sex. Paul says it's one of the things that he, he taught them when he was first starting the church. And I find that challenging. Is that how we think? I can't click on that. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do we say that to each other? Don't mess up in this area. God will punish those who commit such sins. I don't think we tend to, at least not in my church circles. But Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he is right, and we are wrong. But you might be thinking, wait a minute, you know, Jesus is the friend of sinners, and you're right. He came to seek and save that which was lost. The Father runs down the road and embraces the Son and sweeps him up in his arms. Jesus says, John 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. But we have to come to him and we have to listen to his call. I did not call you to live an impure life, but a holy life. Verse 7, as Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Turn around, go the opposite direction. That's what repent means. Then look at verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the teacher with the highest standards in this area. I tell you, he said, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so rejecting the Bible's teaching in this area means rejecting God, Paul says. What did it mean to reject God in this area? I think two things, really. Firstly, living in settled rejection of this instruction. And two, teaching that it is wrong. What do I mean by living in settled rejection of God's authority? Well, imagine that one day, far, far in the future, we're allowed to drink coffee together again after the service. And uh, we're in the lobby um, drinking coffee, and uh, it's, it's all very nice. And uh, you meet someone you haven't met before, that they may have been here wearing a mask the whole time. Um, and you say, ah, I don't think we've met. Um, and you get chatting, and, and she says, what? and you say, you know, what's your line of work? And she says, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thief. I specialize in late model Range Rovers. I can get you one at a good discount, if you like. There's a, a good number in the hills around here. Um, and, uh, and, and at that point, you have all sorts of questions and uh, all sorts of concerns. But imagine that instead you're talking to a friend who says, I'm really struggling with coveting my neighbor's new Range Rover. Please pray for me. Or imagine you're talking to a teenager who says, look, I, I took this from the corner shop and I want to take it back, but I'm, I'm scared. Will you come with me? 
all three of those people are sinning, but only one of them is living in settled, open rebellion against God's teaching. If you are struggling with sin, get someone you trust involved. There are lots of people in this church who would love to chat and pray with you, not because they have all the answers, but because together we are called to strive to live this way. But if you're not struggling, if you are living in settled, contented, open rebellion against God, then it is to you that the warnings of this passage are addressed. We must repent. We must turn back to God. And similarly, we need to be careful of teachers who teach us that these things are okay. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's hard to hear that we should avoid sexual immorality. And there will always be teachers who offer us something more attractive. But verse 8 is such a weighty thing to reject God in this area. Not rejecting a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, this could leave us completely discouraged and hopeless. God's standard is not even a hint of sexual immorality, and we have all failed against that standard. Many of us very recently. But remember, whilst we have failed to live like this, God has not. Jesus has given himself to us so fully that he has died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and welcomed back despite all our failing and rebellion. So what do we do this morning? We come to Jesus. You might be someone who has never come to Jesus, never given your life to Jesus. Or do you see the urgency that you do so this morning? You need his forgiveness, and he will freely give it to you. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, he promises. So come to him this morning asking for his forgiveness. It might be that you're already following Jesus, but you know that you have fallen short again. Well, come to him again. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, he says. Come and know that he has forgiven you. Come and ask for his empowering to live differently because he is the God who gives you his Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, the spirit who can enable you to live in this way, not perfectly, but truly in a different direction, living now to please God in a way that reflects his character, that is self-controlled and loves those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are perfect love, endless goodness, absolute perfection. You made every galaxy. You designed every spider web. You rule the orbit of every asteroid. You are too pure of eyes to look upon evil, but you have loved us with a never-stopping, never-ending, always and forever love. Thank you that at the cross, your Son gave himself for us fully, unreservedly, completely. We cannot understand why, but we praise you and we come to you this morning. We ask for your forgiveness and we rejoice 
that you have said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness because you did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so we commit ourselves now to living for your pleasure by imitating your character, battling our sinful nature and loving those around us. Thank you that you are the one who gives us your Holy Spirit. We pray that by his power, you would help us. We ask all these things in the name of your son who loved us and gave himself for us. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.